Well, good morning. For those I've not met before, my name is Ian. I'm an elder at TCM Baptist Church, and I have the privilege and honour of bringing God's word to you this morning. Just before we start, let me bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at TCM. We thank God for you, and we thank God for the fellowship we have with you in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our reading today is going to be taken from Mark chapter 13, verses 1 to 13, and I'll be reading from the CSB. I'll just give you a moment to find that passage, and when you do, please keep it open. You'll also find it helpful to have a pen and paper handy. There's a lot in these verses and a number of cross-references that we're just not going to have time to do full justice to today, so they certainly warrant further study. So that's Mark chapter 13, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 13. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as witnesses to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Amen. <clears throat> Let me just pray briefly. Lord, by the Holy Spirit, please bring illumination and encouragement as we study your word. And may you be glorified in our meditations upon it and by our responses to it. Amen. Well, today's reading is the start of discourse that lasts to verse 37, the end of the chapter. And you'll find parallel accounts in Matthew 24 and 25 and in Luke 21. And they cover a progressive series of events from the destruction of the temple to the last days, the tribulation, and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in the verses before us today, Jesus is teaching about two of those events separated in time, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the last days which will precede the tribulation and his second coming. Let me just spend a couple of minutes putting these verses into context. This is Jesus' last visit to the temple before his arrest and crucifixion. He'd entered Jerusalem in triumph, but as many of us know, the crowds that had greeted him with such enthusiasm and praise and joy on that day would be screaming for his crucifixion in the very near future. 
He'd been to the temple already. He'd driven out the money changers. He dealt with, his chal with challenges to his authority by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. He'd also seen off the Herodians and the Sadducees when they had tried to trip him up with questions about paying taxes to Caesar and the resurrection from the dead, respectively. He gave the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and the second, to love others as yourself. Things were, there were other things going on as well here, but in short, we can say it was an event-filled time since he'd entered Jerusalem. And it's kind of easy to imagine that the disciples, they must have been on something of a high. They had popular support. Jesus had dealt yet again with his critics. He'd given more wonderful, soul-warming teaching. Perhaps the kingdom of God that they so longed for, perhaps it was about to be inaugurated. The Romans would be kicked out and Jesus would physically rule over a revived Jewish nation. And what a setting for that to be announced. Jerusalem, the temple at Passover. They hadn't quite grasped Jesus' teachings about his suffering and his death on the cross. And now we come to these verses in chapter 13. Verse 1, as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look. What massive stones, what impressive buildings. Now, the other accounts in Matthew and Luke tell us other disciples were present as well. And I wonder if we begin to imagine something of the shock that they must have felt at Jesus' reply. Verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. That unnamed disciple probably expected Jesus just to affirm his observation about the temple. But instead, he gets this most shocking, sobering statement. Not one stone will be left upon another. It must have stopped them all in their tracks. This wasn't just a magnificent, imposing building they were talking about. This was the temple, the heart of the Jewish nation. But it was a heart that was corrupt. Destroyed? It had been before. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar when he captured the city in 587 BC. The Jews were deported to exile in Babylon, and that was a catastrophic event for the nation, seared into their consciousness. It was because of sin. The Babylonians were defeated by the Persians, and their king, Cyrus, allowed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple, and that was completed in 515 BC. That temple was desecrated by the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes, as it's called, and he sacrificed pigs to his own gods in it. The Jews successfully revolted the Maccabean Rebellion. The temple was cleansed and rededicated. And the temple of Jesus' day was an extension of that one. And it was very impressive. Herod the Great began renovation and expansion work on it in 20 BC, and that work was still going on when Jesus was there around 50 years later. This was a big project. The Temple Mount had been doubled in size, and it had massive blocks of stone surrounding it. Some of them measured about 40 feet by 12 feet by 12 feet, and weighed over 100 tons, all expertly crafted to fit perfectly next to each other. There was a lot of gold ornamentation. The buildings were of gleaming white marble. And the whole of the eastern side of the main structure was covered with gold plates. 
Can you imagine the effect as the morning sun rose and shone off that, visible for miles? And you get some idea of the scale of things if you look at the remaining part of the Western Wall, also called the Wailing Wall, uh, Wailing Wall that is in Jerusalem today. If anything looked grand and permanent in Jesus' time, it was this temple. It was magnificent, but it would also be short-lived. In fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy, it was destroyed in AD 70 after a very bloody war by Roman legions under the command of Titus Vespasian, who would later become an emperor. And just out of interest, a lot of the treasure that was looted from the temple was taken back to Rome and used to finance the building of the Colosseum. Not one stone left upon another, exactly as Jesus had prophesied. Now, try and imagine again the shock of Jesus' words on those first disciples. They knew their history. They knew what had happened in the past to the temple. But now they were expecting Jesus' kingdom to come quickly. They'd been arguing about who would be the greatest in it. Now Jesus tells them the devastation visited on the nation in the past would be repeated. The temple would be destroyed again. And again, it would be because of sin, because they rejected the Messiah. And perhaps imagine a groan escaping from them at this time. Well, what does all this mean for us today? Well, I think there are a number of lessons that we can learn from this. Firstly, it's that sin, rebellion against God, never ends well. God is loving and merciful but he is also just and holy, and so he must punish sin. Most of the Jews of Jesus' day refused to repent and believe, despite all the evidence, all the miracles, all the words of Christ himself. They were set on a path of rebellion and destruction. Are you? I pray not. But if you reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I must warn you that even worse destruction will come upon you because you must still pay for your sins. Christ died to pay that price, but if you do not accept that by faith, you are still liable for judgment and for the penalty, the price of those sins. Heaven is real, and so is hell, and that is the price. But here is the really good news. Whatever you have done, you can and will be forgiven if you will confess, repent, and turn to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You will not only be saved, you will be blessed. For those who will not, this account of the temple is a stark warning. God never winks at sin. A second lesson we can learn is that something that looks so permanent and unshakable to us is not. Be that a building, a situation, an empire, whatever. To build our lives on such things, to base our ultimate hope and security in them, is to build on a foundation of sand. And Jesus warns us about the dangers of doing that in Matthew 7. You remember there we have the story of two men who built houses. One builds on rock and the other builds on sand. It's telling that both men built. And perhaps the houses looked very similar, very much alike at first glance. But when the storms came, only the one built on rock survived. The other was completely destroyed. So can I ask you this morning, what or who are you building on? What's your foundation? 
Where do you look for your ultimate security and hope and value? If it is not Jesus Christ, you're building on sand. A third lesson is that appearances can be very deceptive. Again, the temple looked incredibly impressive, a magnificent structure devoted to God. It would have been filled with priests and pilgrims, sacrifices and incense, prayers and scripture readings. But for most, it was a sham. They may have looked the part with all their robes and open acts of devotion, but their hearts were cold and far from the Lord. It's easy to go through the motions of being a Christian, to go to church, well, normally, to perform a ministry even, put some money in the offering, sing the hymns. But do we know him? Do we love him? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul warns us that whatever we do, even if we give away everything we have, even if we give our bodies to be burned, if we have not love, we gain nothing. And in some of the most sobering words of scripture, Jesus warns us in Matthew 7 of the day of judgment when he will say this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Do you know him? Do you love him? If today you do not, turn to him. Again, he will restore you and you can know the assurances of his promises personally. Fourthly, the disciples knew now that Jesus was telling the truth. Their understanding was still pretty dim in many ways, as we'll see. But they seem to have at least made some progress here. <clears throat> uh, they've gone from doubting and even challenging what Jesus tells them you remember how Peter tried to tell Jesus that he was wrong? In Matthew 16, Jesus tells the disciples he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. And Peter reacts, as only Peter could really. In verse 22, uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And he receives a very sharp rebuke from Jesus in reply. Now again, at this point, the disciples don't really understand. But they do now know that Jesus his words are true. Verses three and four. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You notice what they say there. When will these things happen? What will be the sign? Not if. So even though it wasn't what they wanted to hear or what they expected, they believed that Jesus told them the truth, that this was going to happen. And again, I must ask you, do you? Do you trust the Bible as the word of God when it teaches things you may struggle with, like love your enemies? Or when it cuts across modern culture and it causes conflict, as it does with its clear teaching on sexuality, for example? When it promises that Jesus will return in triumph, despite how it may look around us at the present. Do you believe it? I suspect there'll be some listening to this message who can identify with those first disciples. You know the truth about Jesus. You're drawn to him, but there's something not quite right. There's something missing in your understanding. 
if that is you, let me just encourage you to do what these disciples did and go on. They grew in understanding under the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And there's a wonderful promise we have in Matthew chapter 7 and verses 7 to 8 that will give great encouragement here. Read those verses this week, Matthew 7, 7 to 8. Note the promises we have in those two verses. Do all you can to grow in love, in wisdom, in faith, in knowledge. Read your Bibles. Pray for illumination. Pray for each other. Listen to Pastor Ross. Go to the mature Christians amongst you who can give you help with the answers that you need. Well, in response to the questions that they ask, Jesus gives what is commonly called the Olivet Discourse. And it's called that because he delivered it on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of the temple across the Kidron Valley. And it's the longest recorded answer we have to any question Jesus is asked of in the scripture. And from verses 5 to 13, he's going to give us three warnings. There will be deception, verses 5 and 6. There will be wars and disasters, earthquakes and famines, verses 7 and 8. And there will be persecution, verses 9 to 13. Now, let's be honest. When we look at this, it makes for pretty grim reading, doesn't it? The coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is only a taste of what is to follow, leading from verse 14 into the Great Tribulation. And don't we see history turning out just as he said it would? But remember, this is only for a time. Jesus will return. He will be victorious. He will reign in perfect righteousness and power and peace. And we will reign with him, if indeed we are his. And just once again, try and think of the impact now of Jesus' words on those first disciples on the Mount of Olives. Wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms rising against each other. Not only is Jesus telling them that he's not going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem right now, as they were hoping. Actually, it's going to happen quite some time in the future. All these things like kingdoms rising against each other, plural, that's going to take quite a bit of time. And until he does, is it really a surprise that these things will happen? When the world rejects God, these are the inevitable consequences of that rejection. Is persecution really a surprise? Jesus went about preaching, teaching, healing, raising the dead, feeding the hung hungry, doing all sorts of miracles, bringing light and life. He was sinless. And the people of this world hated him for it. They killed him. If we are anything like him, we should expect something similar. Those of us who made the decision to follow Christ can testify to the joy and power and purpose of a Christ-filled life. But there is opposition. There is a cost. And Jesus warns people to count that cost before deciding to follow him. Luke 14. And this is why the name it and claim it are the health, wealth and prosperity gospels are not gospels at all, at least not Christian gospels. They're an abomination. They're a lie, a heresy. We are in a battle, but we are not alone. And it will not cost us anything we won't lose one day anyway. And anything it does cost is as nothing compared to the riches that lie in wait for us if we persevere. Well, in our remaining time, let's look in a little more depth at the signs he gives in today's verses, things that will happen before the tribulation and his second coming. And it starts in verse 5 with deception. 
Jesus tells them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. Watch out. Now, the Greek word is it's blepo, to see, to look at, to take heed, beware, pay attention. It's a very proactive word. There are dangers. There have been many false Christs, false saviors, false prophets, and there still are. There are many deceivers, Scientology, JWs, Mormons, other cults. Some of you may remember Jonestown where hundreds were duped into committing suicide or Charles Manson whose followers were inspired to commit murder. The list goes on. I saw the result of a study a few years ago that, that quite surprised me. It found that many cult members were actually well-educated and intelligent, well, at least initially. The problem was they were also ignorant. They had no foundation. Again, if you're not standing on the rock that is the biblical Jesus Christ, you are vulnerable to deception, however smart and worldly wise you may think that you are. One of Satan's names is the deceiver, and he's very good at it. He's had thousands of years to practice. How will we know the truth from deception or error? By knowing our Bibles, by seeking discernment and wisdom, by not being taken in by the spectacular and the emotional. Verse 22 will tell us that these things are going to fool many. We have no need to fear as long as we watch out, as long as we see to it that we know the truth. Let me give you a practical thing to apply as well. Cults and false religions have a telltale sign. They're always Jesus plus or Jesus minus. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, the Bible is quite clear about things like Jesus' full humanity, his full deity, his death and resurrection, the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone in him. Deception always adds to or takes away these things. In Roman Catholicism, for example, yes, you need faith in Jesus, but that's not enough. You have to do good works. You have to receive the sacraments as well. And you'll never know if you've done enough, so you have to keep on trying harder and harder right to the end. Scripture isn't enough. You have to accept the Pope's teaching as being infallible and the magisterium's. And church tradition is mixed together with the Bible, and that's been added to as well, by the way, a collection of writing called the Apocrypha. So you have the Bible and the Apocrypha and church tradition all put together, and that becomes the Word of God. And of course, there are contradictions then. Mary is held to be sinless by tradition, in direct violation of Scripture. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ's sacrifice is not enough to wipe away your sins. You probably have to go through purgatory, a place of torment beyond the grave, so you can be purged of sin and iniquity and made fit for heaven. Jesus plus. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul writes to a people who have been tempted to give up on the beautiful simplicity of the true gospel. The Judaizers were effectively saying to those people, yes, you can believe in Jesus, that's fine, but you also need to be circumcised. Just add this one thing and all will be well. We can all get on then. But Paul saw the danger and he uses some of his strongest language to warn his readers that if they do this, if they give way on this point, they've abandoned the gospel just by adding one thing to the gospel of salvation by grace through faith. And if you think I'm being a bit hard on the Roman Catholics here, if you're a born-again Christian trusting in Christ alone for salvation and assured of that, 
the Roman Catholic Church says, you are damned to hell for holding that belief. It has issued dozens of its infamous anathemas, cursings to hell, against you. Just read the pronouncements from the Council of Trent in the 16th century. They are very clear and they all remain in force. They cannot be rescinded because to do so would admit error and the church is allegedly infallible. Christ plus is always lethal to the true gospel, hence Paul's strong reaction. What about Christ minus? Well, Islam is a good example here. It comes as a surprise to many Christians to find out that, that Muslims love Jesus. And when they find that out, they wonder, is there a basis for fellowship? Do we worship the same God after all? Listen to this quote by the author and speaker, Tony Campolo. When we listen to the Muslim mystics as they talk about Jesus and their love for Jesus, I must say it's a lot closer to New Testament Christianity than a lot of Christians. Really? Who's the Jesus of Islam? Well, the Islamic Jesus is a man, not God. He did not die. He went to heaven like Elijah. He did not rise from the dead. He did not provide atonement for sins. He's waiting for Allah to send him back. When he does, he will correct all the Christians who've misunderstood who he truly is. He will get married, have children, die, and be buried next to Muhammad. Does that sound like the basis for some sort of commonality to you? Is that the biblical Jesus? Clearly not. It's Jesus minus. And I don't have time to go into details here, but if you study Muslim eschatology, the study of the last days, they are expecting a 12th imam, a leader, a long-awaited savior who will slaughter non-Muslims and pigs and dogs. So bad news for us and for my family's black Labrador. And he'll make a peace agreement with the Jews for seven years. That might set alarm bells ringing for some of you. That might sound familiar. The Muslim Jesus will acknowledge the Imam as Lord, shatter crosses, slay the Muslim Antichrist, who they believe to be a false miracle worker claiming to be the Son of God. Jesus plus or Jesus minus is not the biblical Jesus and truth is not negotiable or relative. It is not an act of love to compromise on core doctrine for the sake of some kind of false peace. So again, we must watch out. We must take heed. We must be equipped. We must love others. But we must never compromise gospel truth. We should be like the Bereans in the book of Acts. They checked out the apostle Paul to make sure what he was telling them was scriptural. And they were commended for doing so. It's a quote from your pastor in a recent social media post. To support false doctrine is to lead people astray. And to lead people astray is a dangerous thing before a holy God. We must never do that. For God's glory, for our sakes, and for the sake of the people we're trying to reach with the gospel. What would you think of a doctor who had a patient with something seriously wrong but didn't want to tell him for fear of causing alarm or upset? Truth matters, and the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. The disciples did not want to hear that the temple would be destroyed again. They did not want to hear that Christ's full reign would be delayed for some time. Jesus loved them enough to tell them the truth so that they could be prepared and so that they could understand the times. Surely 
we must do the same. Well, let's move on. Verses 7 and 8, and we're going to look more briefly at the last two warnings that Jesus gives. So verses 7 and 8. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. But it is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. And this is what we've seen, isn't it? The last century alone. World War I, 20 million dead. World War II, 75 million. The Chinese Cultural Revolution, up to 60 million. Many by starvation. The 1918 outbreak of Spanish flu, up to 100 million. Ethiopian famine, tsunamis, earthquakes. As I stand here today, over 2 million dead with COVID and spreading. And we can't escape to some perfectly safe place. Some people have tried. I heard about a, a North American family who were terrified at the prospect of another war. So they got the maps out and worked out the safest place in the world to live. And this was in 1982. And the place they chose in New Year 1982 was the Falkland Islands in the South Atlantic. Now, if you don't know your history, later that year, the Argentinians invaded the islands and there followed a short but bloody conflict before they were retaken by the British. I'm afraid the singer Belinda Carlisle got it wrong when she sang, Oh, heaven is a place on earth. It is not. We must wait to be called home or for Jesus to return before we get to enjoy total peace. And have you noticed as well that when things get bad, people get desperate for answers, desperate for hope? How many politicians of all, all colours have been swept to power on the wave of great expectations, only to disappoint, only to discover that their power is more limited than was originally thought? And as things get worse, so the desperation increases. And that makes uninformed people even more liable to the kind of deceptions we've been looking at. How tragic it is that so many will turn anywhere to anything, anyone other than the only one who has the real answer, who can offer true peace. You want to be free from anxiety, worry, fear? You can only be so if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Saviour. I have to tell you, my friend, if you're not a Christian, the future does not look bright for you. And how vital is the calling of the church to be salt and light in this world, to be a channel of God's grace, to bring his love so that people can be saved and brought into that eternal life. What a privilege we have, what a joy, and what a duty it is as well. Well, finally, verses 9 to 13, we have persecution and opposition. It's a well-known fact that last century saw more Christians martyred for the faith than the previous 19 combined. But note in verse 10, the gospel will be preached to all nations. It cannot be stopped. You and I are in Christ's kingdom today, if we are his, because others had the courage and the faith and the love to share the gospel. But the truth is, wherever the gospel advances, there is resistance. Jesus himself was resisted to the point of death. And sadly, opposition will even come from within families. Verse 12. Years ago, I used to work for a, a major human rights charity that campaigned for persecuted Christians. And I remember uh, the story of a Saudi woman who became a Christian 
when her father found out, he locked her in the attic of his house and he built a wall to keep her in there. And he said he was keeping her there until he could pluck up the resolve to kill her for the shame that she'd brought on his family by becoming a Christian. Hers was not the only such story. Here in this country, we talk about persecution and it is getting more difficult. But we still have it a lot easier than so many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Open Doors have just released a list of the 50 countries in which persecution of Christians is at its worst. Have a look online sometime. See what so many of our brothers and sisters are going through. Verse 13, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. Again, this is not our ultimate home. There are good things here, things that we can rightfully enjoy, but we must wait for him to return for full satisfaction. And please note, by the way, in verse 11, where it says, don't worry about what you will say, but say whatever's given to you at the time. It isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Please don't take that to mean that you don't have to do anything to prepare, that you just kind of have turned up. What that scripture is telling us is that we do not need to fear. We are never alone. It is not an excuse not to be prepared. 2 Peter 1.5 tells us to make every effort to supplement our faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, and so forth. And the more we grow in godly knowledge, the more assured we will be, the more fruit we will bear, the more useful we'll be in the kingdom of Christ. We have covered a lot of ground this morning, and there's so much more that could be said from these verses. And again, if we left it there, it would be, it would be grim reading in many ways, wouldn't it? But as many of us know, this is only a part of the picture. For the Christian, the best is yet to come. And we see how it ends in the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. Have a look at the promises there sometime. We looked earlier at the prophesied destruction of the temple. Remember Jesus' words in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. He's talking of his body. And that's what happened. He rose from the dead. So we need have no fear if we belong to him. We will be raised also. In the meantime, we are never promised that we will be spared from suffering whilst we live in this fallen world. We are promised we are never alone. Nothing will ever tempt us beyond what we can bear. And he will complete the work he has begun in us. So when the storms of life are blowing fiercely, when you're tempted to despair at your situation, or as you see the rampant evil all around us and getting worse, go on. Go on, be like Paul, look at what he went through. Shipwrecks, stonings, floggings, abandonment, loss of privilege, money, status, misrepresented, misunderstood, hated by his own people, vilified, just like his master. And what was his conclusion? He was no fool. Romans 8:18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed in us. The best is yet to come. If you are not a Christian, if you have not bowed to Jesus as Saviour and Lord in heart as well as in mind, I plead with you to do so. The right call of God on your life is not a light matter to be put off for another day. You may not have another day. 
We don't want you to stand before a holy God for judgment still in your sins. There could only be one outcome then. We don't want you to have to go through the difficulties of this life without real, true, well-founded hope. You don't have to. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Confess your sins. Know his forgiveness and life. Whatever you have done, whatever situation you find yourself in. Let me close just by making one more brief observation about the Apostle Paul. You know, despite all his trials, all he went through, all the suffering, he was full of life and joy, real joy. Eternal life isn't just everlasting life. It is a quality of life that he enjoyed and that you and I can have here and now in Christ. A joy that suffices and surpasses any situation we could find ourselves in. So we don't just grit our teeth to get through it. We can have faith and hope and confidence and joy until that day when our battles are done and we enter the undiluted fullness of life in his presence. That is what awaits us. In Christ, we need have no fear. He is sovereign. He is in full control. He knows, loves, and cares for those who are his. And he is coming back in complete victory. And we will be with him if we go on. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let me just close with a brief prayer. Father, these are sobering words that we have read, but thank you for the promises you've given us. We are never alone, and your plan for us is always good. Give us the strength, faith, and love to live with joy for you and to be ambassadors of your gospel message to those who do not know you. Let us so conduct ourselves that on that final day, we can hear you say those precious words, well done good and faithful servant. Come into the reward that has been kept for you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. May the Lord bless and keep you all.